We'll continue to worship him in Psalm 65. So if you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Psalm 65. It's a psalm of David. To the choir master, a psalm of David, a song. Praises due you, O God, in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, the one who steals the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe of your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we do bow and we ask your blessing upon the reading and now preaching of your word. Father, would you open our eyes that we would see the wonderful, marvelous things from your law. Would you write them on our hearts that we might not sin against you? Would you open our eyes that we might see your hand at work in all ways around us, that we would be a people careful to give you honor and glory, and praise, now and forevermore. And God's people say it. Amen. Uh, if you have children, or you have been around children, or you've raised children, then you can probably remember that season in life where they're ever-increasing vocabulary and natural curiosity and inquisitiveness met with safe people around them. You, you started to hear their favorite word, and it's not no or mine, but it's why. If you've raised children, then you know what it's like when you tell them to eat their vegetables, and they respond with, well, why? Or eat your food before you eat your dessert, and they respond with, why? Do not stick anything in the light socket, and they respond with, why? Wear your seatbelt whenever you get in the car with anyone, including mommy and daddy and anyone else, and they respond with, why? Limit the number of hours or time or minutes you're in front of a TV or a computer screen, and they respond with, why? It seems to me that whenever you uh, tell them to do something, their knee-jerk reaction is, well, why should I do it, mommy or daddy? Why should I wash my hands when I get off the potty? Why, 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 right? If you've raised children, then you've been there before. 
There's a psychologist, her name is M.M. Chenard. She's a founding faculty member of the University of California at Merced, and she writes, this is why children ask why. Because as they develop cognitively, they are hit with knowledge gaps in their knowledge states. And so asking why allows them to get the information needed to move their knowledge structure closer to adult-like states. So let me put this, maybe, let me frame it a different way. Your child loves the iPad, and they want to stay on it all day long, right? And then mommy or daddy has to say, wait a minute, you can't stay on this more than 45 minutes. And they ask, why? Now, notice there's a gap. They see iPad as fun. They see videos as play. They see it as entertaining. But there's something we adults know that they don't quite know yet, and it's this. It can become addictive, and it can make you move out of social awareness where you engage with real people all in order to live in fantasy world. And then this can sort of uh, hurt you in terms of attachments and friendships, right? That, that they don't know all of that. All they know is play. And the question of why starts to take what we know as adults and bring that to bear on their smaller minds so that they can, in turn, relate to technology in a healthy way. That why is important. They actually need to know the why in order to behave and, and, and deal with these things in a manner that pleases the Lord and is healthy. Here's a question that I want to put before us. Let's, let's kick that up a notch. We're looking at three-year-olds and 30-year-olds, but let's, let's put ourselves in the posture of the child and put God in the posture of father. If we're in relationship with an eternal God who is holy and infinitely wise, knows all things, sees all things, then surely we have knowledge gaps. Surely God is going to put certain things down here. And because we're finite and we're created, we're going to have these moments of disconnect where we need the Lord to fill in these knowledge gaps so that we can then relate to him in a way that pleases him. In other words, to follow the Lord, in my opinion, it means that we're going to have questions. Questions about why and how. And if you sort of grew up where you kind of had this hard and fast stance against questioning authority, this can kind of feel like, wait a minute, you're saying we can ask God questions? And I'm saying, yes, I think if we're honest and we're following the Lord, we will face things where we have questions. I can tell you one of the first questions I had, and I remember it like it was yesterday. When I met Jesus, I was an adult. I had to be convinced why I need to worship him. Why is he worthy? I had to be convinced 
Why should I obey, right? Like this, this was not necessarily known to me. I had to have people walk with me and say, no, this is why we go to church. We're going to ascribe glory and honor and praise to the one true God. And this is why the Lord deserves your obedience, right? And that's the question that I want to ask of the text. Right out of the gate, David's going to give us an imperative. And it's going to be a command. And that command is going to tell us to praise the Lord. And if you're like me, sometimes I want to know why. Why are you praiseworthy? My heart needs to be reminded over and over again because it's so easy to forget. And what you see David doing in this passage is giving us compelling reasons for complete reverence. He's, he's giving us reasons. If you come to the text with questions of, Lord, why are you worthy of praise? Why should I open my mouth? Why should I give you my time and my money and my resources? Why give you my life? David says, we're going to solve that. I'm going to open to you a world, a, a, a list of compelling reasons to give him your complete reverence. You see, the command for reverence, it comes right there in verse 1. Did you notice what it says? David wastes no time. He begins the psalm and he moves straight into praise. He says, praise is due you, O God of Zion, and to you vows shall be performed. And if you look at the bottom of your Bibles, right there where it says praise is due you, mine has a one next to the you. So if you go to the bottom It says, or this can be translated, praise waits for you in silence. Now, here's what I think is happening here. I've never been to the Masters, but I have watched the Masters on TV. And I know that there is a difference between um, the, the Masters where they're about to put for birdie and to win it and Alabama on their game winning drive. And, And there's a contrast, right? Over here, when your favorite co- collegiate team or professional team is about to drive, the stand, is, they're going wow in the, in, in the crowd. It's noisy. It's wow. You can feel it. But if you take that behavior to the masters, you're going to be escorted out of there, right? Why? Golfing etiquette says when a guy or a woman is on the green making the putt, you can't talk. And if you listen to the commentators they're even whispering so that their voices don't carry to distract the golfer. And it's quiet as a mouse. And you see the person line up, they're reading the green, and they get their putter in hand, they get their grips right, and they, uh, as soon as they bring it back, and as soon as they hit the ball, in the hole, in the hole, in the hole, right? The, the crowd kind of erupts. But did you notice the tension? They're waiting until the opportune time to scream and to cheer. When David says, praise waits for the Lord in silence, I think it's the image of God's people gathered in Zion, God's city. And they're at this point where they're waiting with anticipation and expectation and children are on their father's shoulders, and no one is looking at their cell phones. All eyes are gazed towards the temple. 
until that moment when it's time to worship. And they're silent, but they're ready to open their mouths and to give God honor and praise. David is commanding and telling us that praise awaits the Lord. But that's not it. Did you notice the end of verse 1? And to you shall vows be performed. And so notice the first is audible, right? It's participatory. It's worship. It's ascribing to him dignity, honor, and glory. But, But notice what David says. It doesn't just stay with what we do with our mouths. He actually says, and to you our vows shall be performed. So what is he talking about in terms of these vows? I'll give you a a little background about these vows. This isn't the first time we see them. In Psalm 50, which is written by Asaph, he writes, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High God. This should draw our attention also back to 1 Samuel 1, when Hannah, she's barren, and her and her husband cannot have kids. And so she goes to the house of the Lord. And she stays there praising and praying and weeping. And, and Eli thinks that, that she's drunk. And, he, and she actually says, Lord, if you would give your servant a son, I vow to give him back to you. And she stayed another day. And she praised and she left. Roll the time clock forward. God did bless her and her husband with the child. And you know what she said? I will keep my vow. I will go back to the house of God, and I will give my son back to the Lord. You're talking about obedience here. And what David says about the Lord is he is worthy of our mouth service, our praise, And he's worthy of what we do with our obedience. This is a command to praise the Lord and to perform. It's a command to give him glory and honor and to obey him. And this is what I want to call reverence. Reverence for the Lord is emotional. Reverence for the Lord is auditory. Reverence for the Lord is words coming out of our mouths exclaiming glory and honor and praise. And what David says reverence for the Lord is also obedience to him flowing from that place of praise. This is the commandment, right? Right out of the gates. And, and, and to be childlike here, like daddy, why? Why are you worthy of obedience? Why are you worthy of our praise? And I know that might get under some of our skins because we come out of settings where questions aren't welcomed. And it it, it looks like we're challenging authority because we're curious. But what you see God doing in some places, right, sometimes God says, it's because I said so. End of discussion. We're not talking about it. I'm the creator. You're the creature. Now we're not talking about it, right? And parents can pull that card in our homes. However, isn't there also a place to welcome curiosity and to say, you know what? I know. 
Let me explain it. Let me take time and, and give you reasons and rationale. This is the God that we see in Psalm 65. He's the God who through David says, let me tell you why I deserve your obedience and why I deserve your praise. And so David starts to lay out our second point, compelling reasons why the Lord ought to be revered. Reason number one is in verse two. Notice what David says, oh, you who hear prayer. David is telling us that, that, that while it might feel awkward to pray, while it might not feel like our prayers leave the ceiling, while it might feel strange to pray in silence and to think thoughts after God and to commune with him by silently praying, while that might feel not helpful, David says, no, it is. Your father hears every word that is uttered from your mouth. He hears those thoughts, those things that you carry. They reach his throne. There is no barrier because of the work of Jesus. He hears your prayers, saints, which spills over into verse 5. Did you catch verse 5? By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. In other words, in verse 2, David says, God, hears our, hears our prayers. And then verse 5, he says he actually answers them. Now, we have to ask of this particular psalm, what prayers and what answering does David have in mind in this particular psalm? And I, I think, he hears and answers prayers for provision through the earth. In other words, you, you, you have David and probably the people of Israel who have been praying and asking God for provision through the earth by way of food and water and those things that we need to live. Notice verse 11. It says, you crown the year now, this ought, to, this ought to capture our attention because David is looking at some year, which I'm going to unpack in a minute, but he's looking at some, some, some year. He says, you crown the year with your bounty, your wagon tracks overflow with abundance, or literally, you leave abundance in your wake. Now, I don't use wake often, but I have gotten on a few boats. And I know enough about a wake to know this. That when this big boat kind of comes through the sea or the ocean and there is a line attached to it and there is someone on a wake board using the wake from the, the, the vessel that, that as this boat kind of cuts across the water, it creates this wake behind it. And then some people, I won't do it, but they get back there and they ski on it and do all kind of stuff. But there's a wake. And what does the wake tell you? The wake communicates to you that something has gone in the front and behind it, right? He's interrupting friction, interrupting the flow of water, making tracks, so to speak, in the water. And here is David's image of the Lord, and it's beautiful. He views the Lord as a giant entity, and he's roaming the earth walking the earth and he's so weighty that there's a wake behind him and in that wake 
comes everything we need for life. James Montgomery Boyce says that this psalm is more than likely a harvest hymn, a song that was sung when the crops were gathered in Israel. It deals with the bounty of a good harvest. It is likely that this was composed for the Jews' annual harvest feast, the Feast of the Tabernacles. This was the longest and most joyful feast of all the Jews. It began on the fifth day of the seventh month, which was observed as a Sabbath, and it continued until the 22nd day of the month, which was also observed as a Sabbath for a total of eight days in all. In other words, what Boyce is saying, when you see that, that word there about the year filled with bounty, it's the image of God's people having planted a year ago. And having been praying, when harvest season comes, oh Lord, let there not be a famine. Let there be food. Let there be flocks. Let there be grain. Let the mountains flourish with everything we need. Because if we don't get this food, we will die. And notice the tone of the rest of the psalm. Look at verse 9. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. David pictures the throne of God, the city of God in heaven, and it has a river that flows from it. And the river flowing from heaven waters the earth. It is the the, the cause for all of the water that we have on the earth. It's as if God himself is the one watering the earth. And so notice what it says in verse 10. You water its furrows abundantly. You settle its ridges. You soften it with showers and you bless its growth. What is the it that David is talking about? It's the earth. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. When you look at the meadows, you see flocks of animals. The valleys deck themselves with grain. The grain there is growing and they shout and sing together for joy. Creation is clapping and giving praise and honor to the one who is sustaining it. And then guess who, guess who benefits from the Lord sustaining creation? It's us. You see it in verse, nine, verse 8, and it's not just Israel. Notice what it says in verse 8, and all who dwell to the ends of the earth. North, south, east, and west. This psalm says, despite the ground being cursed by Adam, despite it being full of thorns and thickets, your Father in heaven is a good God. He's a generous God who still makes certain that the earth supports the people on the earth. This is what David, in my opinion, is praying. And this is sort of what he sees. But the people need more than provision from the earth. They also need protection from the earth. That just this week, if you've been keeping up with the news about what happened in California, an earthquake. 
We have an entire ministry in our denomination called MNA Disaster Response. And all they do, not all they do, but what they focus on is watching what's happening in the world, particularly in, on our, in our country. When there's a tornado, they're there. When there's an earthquake, they're trying to mobilize people there. When there's flooding, they're there. When a hurricane comes, they're there. Did it ever cross your mind that the reason we need disaster response is precisely because the earth that we live on, it does provide food and, 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 and the things we need for life, but you also know that it takes life. It's dangerous. And so did you notice what David says in verse 6? You are the one who by strength established the mountains, being girded with might, and you are the one who steals the roaring of the seas and the roaring of the waves. Jesus was not the first person to do this in the Bible. If you go back to Psalm 65, David views the Lord as always doing this. That the Lord is not just making a wake of provision on the earth, but God himself is telling which tectonic plates can move. And he's telling which tornadoes will start and where they will go. And he's quieting storms in, in, the, in the ocean that it views God as intricately involved, so much so that if he withdrew his hand, there is no life on the earth. And what David is saying is like, Lord, I see it. I see you providing for us through the earth, and I see you simultaneously protecting us from the earth. And David says, I'm not done yet because just there are people who live on the earth. And so you get down to verse 7. We also need protection from people on the earth. Look at verse 7. God steals the tumult of the peoples. Look, I don't use tumult ever. But this is warring language. It's international war language. When nations rise against nations and kingdoms rise against kingdoms and they fight over stuff, over people, over power. And what David is saying, you might think that your international negotiator is keeping peace, but he's not. And you might think that your military is strong enough to keep peace, but it's not. That unless the Lord watches over the country or the city, we have a military in vain. And so David says, Lord, you're the one. You're the one who keeps peace. And sometimes you use humans and sometimes you don't need to use humans. Sometimes you take the hearts of kings and you bend them and you make them do your will so that the evil that they are intent on doing, they cannot carry out because you are the sovereign protector of the earth. This is David's view of God providing protecting and keeping the earth safe. And this is hard in America because we can go to Kroger and you can go get bananas and potatoes and eggs and orange juice and meat 
and we don't see all the effort that went into the work to get it to the grocery store to begin with. And what David is doing, he's pulling the veil back. Do not think your food comes from Kroger. Your food comes from the hand of Yahweh. He waters the ground so that the corn you eat can thrive. He keeps the level of the seas up so that the fish you eat can thrive. Do not think that your ultimate hope and trust is in your military. It's not. It's in the hand of the Lord. He keeps peace. Do not think that your home or your gated neighborhoods or any of those things that we look to for protection is the actual source of the protection. David says, no, look, peel the veil back. It's, this is the Lord keeping and protecting his people. And isn't this good news that David is laying out for us? It's okay to praise the Lord for food on your table. It's one of the favorite, my favorite songs Mr. Mr. Arthur does. I'm not going to insult him by trying to sing it. But he says, I want to say thank you. Thank you for all that you've done thus far. Thank you for being the God that you are. Thank you for food on my table. I know you're able. I want to say thank you. Now, if you're in the reform camp, you tend to not think that the provision of food is a good thing. But we're, look at the hymn that we're about to sing at the end. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, sun, moon, and stars in their courses above, join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. What is that next hymn we're going to sing saying, you can see God's faithfulness to you. When you open your refrigerator and you have food, when you have a roof over your head, when you dwell in relative safety, David says we ought to bow and praise. And this protects us from being Gnostics, doesn't, doesn't it? Gnostics believe that it's only the soul. That's the important thing. Just get your soul to heaven and the body doesn't matter. And if you read Psalm 65, the body does matter. Food at your table matters. Your living conditions, they matter. Shelter over your head, it matters. Grain matters. Safety matters. We're not Gnostics. We believe that God cares for the whole man, the whole woman, and the whole child. And he's worthy to be praised and obeyed if that was the only thing he ever did for you. If that was it, he's worthy because we don't deserve any of it. But it's not it. If we extrapolate this sense of the pinnacle of his faithfulness is revealed in what we get materially, you know we're flirting with the prosperity gospel. 
prosperity gospel. God isn't the gospel. What I drive is and what I eat is and what, where I live is that God is a means to get stuff, more security, better food, better clothing. You might be tempted to, to hear me saying that, and that's not true either. And you see it in, the la in our last point. How could Paul say, I know how to abound, whether I have everything or nothing? How could he pray that? Because Paul knew the ultimate provision of God is not freedom. The ultimate provision of God is not freedom to walk the earth. He was in prison. The ultimate provision of God is not three meals a day. The ultimate provision of God is something even better. And you see it right there in verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. That, those two verses, they seem to not fit with the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm is talking about the earth and waves and food and water and provision and abundance, right? And the earth. And then right there at the beginning, David puts in the two little verses that doesn't talk about the earth. It talks about God's court. It doesn't talk about God's provision of stuff. It talks about God's provision for atonement. Now, two things here. I think the placement of those verses matter in the psalm. I intentionally started at what is secondary and worked back to what is primary. But from David's perspective, he writes about why is God praiseworthy and deserving of obedience. Then he lays verses three and four and as tangential benefits, he gives you the blessing on the earth. But the first thing David talks about in terms of God being worthy of our honor and praise and obedience is what you see earlier in the psalm. And Boyce is our friend again here because he says this is not a coincidence that if you look at the Jewish calendar, then you know when the Feast of Tabernacles happened in the seventh month, there was another day on their calendar right before the Feast of Tabernacles. And you know what day it was? The Day of Atonement. Let that hit you right here. In Israel's calendar, you have harvest season and the Feast of Tabernacles. And that was bountiful and it was a blessing. And you know what was before that, right before that? the Day of Atonement, when God did something else bountifully. And it wasn't the provision of food and protection and drink and clothing. What was before that day was his provision for atonement for their sins. When the high priest would make a sacrifice and that sacrifice on the mercy seat 
would picture something far more important than food. It would picture our need for spiritual cleansing. It would picture our need to have something die in our place to make us right with the Lord. It would picture something holy and blameless and spotless presented to the Lord in our place that we who are guilty and burdened with our sins might have them blotted out and we might be made white as snow. And that is what David is saying in the psalm. What is more important than God's provision of bread for you? It's his provision of the bread of heaven. I imagine having a conversation with God that goes a little like this. Daddy, I need food. Like real food. Why, son? Because I'm hungry. Why are you hungry, son? Because the body you gave me, it needs energy to do all the things that it is supposed to do. Well, why do you need energy so that I can stay alive, daddy? Well, why do you want to stay alive, son? And I'm like, okay. And you know what he says? I'm leaving you alive with this food so that you will find life in me. That food is a pointer. And that's why Jesus says in John, do not labor for food that perishes. He says, your your, your ancestors, they ate the manna in the wilderness. And he says, and they died. He says, labor not for food that leads to death. Labor for the true bread that comes from heaven, that when you eat of it, you will never die. And so what was Jesus doing? He was orienting their hearts around food. Do not just seek me because I'm a miracle worker feeding the thousands. I've come to feed you with something far greater, and that is my own life. And so you might say that what David is doing in this psalm is pointing us Why does God give you grain? Why does he give you food? Why does he give you shelter? Why does he protect you from warring countries? Because he's trying to protect you from him. There is a storm that's greater than any hurricane, and it's the storm of God's wrath. And God is saying, to the degree that you want protection from nature... You ought to be seeking protection from me. That's the greater provision in the psalm. Before David talks about God providing water and bread and grain, the most beautiful thing God provides in this psalm is atonement. You have blotted out my sin. I can relate to you as son and not enemy. And the most beautiful thing you see in the psalm is God is commonly good to all of the earth. That phrase, all of the earth, it comes up over and over. And then look look what you see right there in verse 4. He is commonly good to all the earth, but blessed is the one you choose to bring near to dwell in your courts. 
We shall be satisfied with goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. What is David saying? God is commonly good to sustain the earth. But what's amazing is he gives special, sovereign, saving grace to his people. And you will experience his goodness. You will dwell in his home forever. Now, I don't know about you, but for this moment, my curiosity has been settled. Why is God worth honoring and obeying? You continue to sustain my life. You have secured my glory. You've given your son for me that I might dwell in your tent and your house forever. You've done all of that. You got it. Notice our closing hymn, how it moves right from summer and winter and springtime and harvest. Notice how it ends. Pardon for sin and peace that endureth. Thine own presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would indeed fix our gaze upon you. Help us this week to see your goodness, to see your goodness in creation as we eat bread and drink water and have food and shelter. Might it result in praise and adoration. And Father, take us deeper where we see the ultimate provision of your Son, and we long for the ultimate place, and that's to be with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Keep our gaze there as well, we pray, O oh God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.